Well, hey folks, I'm Steve and I'm one of the preachers here. And in the last few weeks, what we've been trying to do is give you a high level overview of the Bible so that as we begin reading it together this year, you're gonna understand what's going on and how to interpret it no matter where you find yourself in the Bible. So today we get into the New Testament, but everything I'm gonna tell you about the New Testament really rests on everything that Matt and I have tried to teach you about the Old Testament over the last few weeks. So let me start by trying to give you in short form what we've already said. And by the way, None of the stuff that I'm saying here is original to me. I learned it all from a professor of Hebrew named Miles Van Pelt, in case you want to go check it out. Okay, now our key operating principle is that the Bible is about Jesus. And if you'll recall, we learned this from Jesus himself at the end of Luke. He said this in Luke 24, 44. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So remember that the resurrected Jesus here is talking about only the scriptures that had been written at this point, which is to say the Old Testament. So he says everything here that is written in the Old Testament scriptures can only be understood in light of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. So in other words, Jesus says, Everything written in the Old Testament in some way or another is about me. So that is our first principle. Second and equally important is how that message is communicated to us through the Old Testament. And the structure by which this message of Jesus' death and resurrection is communicated to us is, as Jesus says, by means of a particular threefold structure, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the wisdom literature. And I've taxed your patience over the last two weeks to try to explain to you why that structure is important. It's important because the criterion of arrangement which it witnesses to. The main guiding criterion for the arrangement of the Old Testament is covenant. The law or the first five books give us the content of the covenant. The prophets, you've got Joshua through Malachi, and that gives us a history of what it looks like for one particular people to live out the covenant, namely Israel. And the history section includes the prophets who preach about the implications of the covenant. And then third, we have the wisdom literature, which tells us how any of God's people can learn to live under God's covenant in any place and at any time. Time. So, what I labored to demonstrate last week is that a significant interpretive key for understanding what to do with the Old Testament is this. The law and the prophets are for us, but not about us. What that means is that we can learn from those sections, but they are not immediately applicable to our situation. Now, some people might chafe at that idea. For example, we take Daniel's life and his faithfulness in exile, even to death, and we hold that up as an example to be followed. We say that it is for us and about us, but notice that we don't imply that interpretive principle with equity across the whole of the scripture. For example, Daniel is in the prophet section. Well, so is Samuel. And you remember that time when Samuel took up a sword at the command of the Lord and hewed Agag and his family to pieces before the Lord. Now, like that, that was not a sin. Like God commanded him to do this. But if we apply the same interpretive principle to this story as we do to Daniel, then we need to take up swords and go hew up our enemies, you know, be like Samuel. So all that to say, the law and the prophets are for us, but not about us. The wisdom literature, on the other hand, is for us and about us. So you can take up the Psalms and you can pray them. You can learn God's wisdom in Proverbs. You can see what a woman of valor looks like in the narrative of Ruth, and you can imitate her strength and then on and on. Okay, so that's all by way of review of how we handled the Old Testament. Now let's move on to the New Testament. Now, of all the interpretive keys that we laid out of the Old Testament, 
Testament, all of those are going to apply to the New Testament as well. Jesus said that the key to understanding the Old Testament was to realize that it was about his own life, death, and resurrection. The New Testament is also about his life, death, and resurrection, and that seems too obvious a thing to say, but it needs to be said because we often forget it. We approach the New Testament in a lot of the same moralistic ways as we approach the Old Testament. If we're not careful, we tend to think the New Testament is just a repository of moral principles to be followed. Now, to be fair, there are moral principles to be followed in the New Testament, but it's not that simple, and I'll get back to that in a minute. Also, it's going to be very important to see that the New Testament, which was written by Jews who were well-versed in the threefold structure of the Hebrew Bible, have arranged our New Testament according to that exact same scheme, the law, the prophets, and wisdom. Or to put it in covenant language, covenant, covenant history, and covenant life. The New Testament begins with the four Gospels, which corresponds to the law, and the Gospels lay out for us the explanation of the new covenant in Jesus. And then remember that the next section of the Old Testament is the prophets, which includes the history of God's people living out the covenant along with preachers who call them back to fidelity in the covenant. In the New Testament, after the Gospels, we just so happen to have a book that deals with the history of God's people as they live out the new covenant, and it happens to be interspersed with preaching. What book is that? Acts. Now, the same interpretive principle is going to apply in the New Testament. The law and the prophets are for us, but not about us. And we're fond of reading Jesus's life and the Gospels and then trying to imitate him. And it kind of works in a few places, like when Jesus shows compassion to a person. But let's be honest, the vast majority of Jesus's life is not up for imitation. Like, am I going to go into a place and claim to be the Son of God? Am I, am I going to bear the sins of the world on my shoulders and die as an atoning sacrifice? Am I going to ascend to heaven and sit at God's right hand? And no, of course not. Why? Because the Gospels are for us, and Acts is for us, but not about us. But then we get to the wisdom literature of the New Testament, namely the epistles, and these are for us and about us. Any of God's covenant people at any time and in any place can take what is in this literature and apply it. So when Paul says that we must not get drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit, that's immediate application, and to be clear, I'm not saying that nothing in the Gospels and Acts is applicable to us, but they are not immediately applicable. There are additional interpretive steps required to get to what those things mean for us. Additionally, Paul seems to know that he's writing wisdom literature because he follows the pattern that the wisdom literature in the Old Testament set out. Now, maybe you've heard that every one of Paul's epistles conforms to a two-fold structure. There's indicative, and then there's imperative. The first half of his letters are always filled with indicatives about what Christ has done on our behalf, who we are in him, and the grand plan of redemption that God is working. And then in the second half, he pivots, and it's all about imperatives, which is to say commands. In light of these indicatives, here's how you ought to live. Now, where did he learn all that? He didn't just make it up. I mean, remember last week? That's the structure of wisdom literature. Take the Proverbs, for example. We tend to think of that book as exclusively things to do, which is to say imperatives. But those imperatives are only found in chapters 10 through 31. The first nine chapters are all indicative about what the wisdom of God is and why it's worth more than gold. So Paul, as you know, was well-versed in the scriptures, and he knew what kind of literature he was writing, and so he took up the conventions of that kind of literature. Like, do you see? Okay, so that's how the structure of the New Testament matches the structure of the Old Testament. But there is more. The New Testament is actually the answer key to the Old Testament. Like, I showed you last week, if you remember, that the Old Testament poses so many questions that it doesn't answer. And we saw how the whole body of the Old Testament 
Testament ends with dangling questions. Who will go up? Who will build a temple with a glory that exceeds Solomon's temple? Who will truly bring God's people home from exile? And on and on and on. And then we saw how the arrangers of the New Testament answer those questions in Jesus. But there are so many more questions that need to be answered. Now, the Old Testament did not fall from heaven in its current form. It was actually arranged and ordered by someone, or maybe multiple people. Somebody, and we don't know who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gathered up all the separate books of the Old Testament and arranged them in the format that I've been teaching you about. And this is not just information that's available to like historians and archeologists who have tried to make their best guess from the evidence. The evidence for this person whom we'll call the canonicler is actually in the scripture itself. And the way that we know this is because whoever this canonicler was, we can actually see the stitch work that he did. And this is so important for understanding the New Testament. So stick with me on this. Let me show you. The first section of the Old Testament, as we've said, are the books of Moses, the five books of Moses. Now let's look at how that section ends in Deuteronomy 34. In verse 9 it says, And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Now, we know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but he died at the end of Deuteronomy, so we know that he couldn't have written this little closing section. And not only that, but whoever is writing this has had some time for reflection on the life of Moses. He says, there has not arisen a prophet like Moses since that day. So this canonicler is looking back over the history of Israel and saying, we've had a lot of prophets. Like there was Elijah and he was very powerful. And there was Isaiah and he was this magnificent preacher. There was Ezekiel and his visions were astounding. But no prophet since Deuteronomy was like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. So here at the end of the Pentateuch, we're left wondering, Will there ever be another prophet like Moses? And then you turn the page, and what section of the Old Testament do we get? We get the prophets. And after reading through that entire section and considering all the prophets of Israel, we find ourselves agreeing with the canonicler. No, there never was a prophet like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. And then we get to the New Testament, and we open with Matthew. And isn't it interesting that the very first story we read is about the infant Jesus born under the sentence of death, this crazed monarch Herod wants to kill this contender for his throne. But wait, wasn't Moses born under the same circumstances like the Pharaoh had ordered all the Hebrew boys to be cast into the Nile? And what happens? Moses' mothers defy the order and he puts Moses in a basket and sends him down the river. And who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter and Moses grows up in the heart of Egypt. Now, do you remember where Jesus' family fled in order to escape death from Herod? Egypt. Okay, now think about this. In all of Exodus, what is the most significant moment of Israel's history? Now, you might say it was the Exodus itself, or you might say it was the entry into the Promised Land, but there was one event more important than all of that that made all of that possible, namely Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, remember what happens on that mountain. Moses goes up to the peak, which is covered with fire and smoke, and he returns with what? The Ten Commandments. And it's the Ten Commandments that provide the substance of God's covenant with Israel. Now, turn a couple more pages in Matthew, and what do you have here? You have chapter 5, and there's Jesus going up onto a mountainside, and he gives what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the substance of his sermon? 
It's the law of Moses, more specifically the Ten Commandments. Like he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, like he's giving us the substance of the law of the new covenant. Okay, now one more thing. It's universally agreed upon by those who study Matthew that Matthew's gospel falls neatly into five discernible divisions. And what other section of the scripture has five discernible divisions? the five books of Moses. Now, I'm literally just scratching the surface here. There are so many more connections here that we could explore, but these will have to do to make the point. Now, Matthew is telling his readers in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the new and better Moses. The question hanging at the end of the books of Moses was this, will there ever be another prophet like Moses who knew the Lord face to face? And Matthew answers, it's Jesus Christ, and only he is better than Moses. It's astonishing. All right, now I'm running out of time here, and I do need to talk about Revelation, but let me just draw one more comparison here because it's just so tasty. Jesus also fulfills the books of the prophets as well. Now, you remember Malachi is the last book in this section, and do you recall how that ends? It ends by saying that the Lord will send to Israel a prophet like Elijah, and Elijah was among the most powerful of the prophets. And so then we get to the New Testament. What do we have? We have John the Baptist, who is the new Elijah, according to Jesus's reckoning. And that would have been amazing enough, but when John sees Jesus for the first time in the waters of the Jordan, what does he say? He says, you should be baptizing me. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie your sandals. So not only did the Lord send a prophet like Elijah, but the new Elijah testified to the hearing of everyone that there is one among us greater than me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All right, now all of that, it's astonishing. Like, it's astonishing to me. I hope it is to you as well. And we could literally spend like an entire year's worth of sermons drawing these kinds of connections, and it would take your breath away if you were to see all of them. But I do need to move on to Revelation. So how in the world are we to understand that book? Well, I'm not going to wade into the details of how we are to interpret that book, although that'd be fun. But I do want to show you how it functions in the New Testament. And in order to do that, we need to go back to Genesis. Now, I've been saying for the last few weeks that the covenant section of the Old Testament was the first five books of Moses, but now I'm going to complicate that a little bit. Now, really, only Exodus through Deuteronomy belong in the covenant section, which is to say four books. Genesis is its own thing. The real story of God making a covenant with his people under the covenant mediation of Moses really begins in Exodus. Genesis is really just the story of how Israel ended up in Egypt to begin with, and it provides the backstory for why God was going to rescue his people. So let's call Genesis the covenant prologue. It just sort of sets the story up. Now, let me tell you something that is going to seem completely unrelated, but I assure you it is not. Think about a book that you've read. Now, how do you know like when one thought begins and another thought ends. Is there a visual cue that you have in the body of a text that signals a new thought? Of course you do, it's a paragraph, right? And when you see that line of text indented, you know that a new idea or development is taking place. Okay, so that's how you know that shifts in the argument are taking place on a minor level. But what visual cues do we have to tell us that a major transition is taking place? That's a chapter. Now, the thing is, you probably don't even think about this, but you've been so trained to pick up on these visual cues that you've forgotten them. They're just second nature to you by now. So what does this have to do with everything we've been talking about? Well, the Bible was originally written on scrolls, and because committing words to a scroll was expensive and a massive undertaking, they wrote everything down in Hebrew with no vowels, no spaces between the words, no chapters, no verses, nothing, just giant blocks of text until the scroll ran out. And because we're so used to our own visual cues, you 
might wonder, how in the world did they know when the story was shifting? Like, how did they know when a major change in the narrative was taking place? Well, they had their own conventions, and they mean almost nothing to us, but they were second nature to them. Now, I already told you last week about the genealogies. You remember that? Um, that was one of their conventions. They saw a genealogy, and they knew something was about to happen. Another one of their conventions was a literary structure called chiasm. Basically, it's the narrating of events or ideas, and then the exact reversal of those ideas. And when the first idea has been reversed by the last idea, that's how you know the section is over. Okay, now that we have that established, let me tell you why I think it matters. Think of how Genesis begins. It opens with creation. And then at the end of chapter 2, the creation is completed with the marriage of the man and the woman. And then in chapter 3, Satan enters and tears their world apart. And they find themselves alienated from God, ejected from the garden. If you let that story in, it will break your heart to unimaginable depths. Now, I said that Genesis was really the covenant prologue. It's like its own thing. Well, Revelation corresponds to Genesis, except that it's the covenant epilogue. Revelation, like Genesis, doesn't fall into the threefold scheme that we've laid out. This is the book that closes the story down. And then how does it do that? Well, if you've read it, you'll remember that in chapter 19, Satan is defeated and then cast into the lake of fire. In chapter 20, after Satan's destruction, what do you have? You have an event of great rejoicing, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then how does it end in chapters 21 to 22? new creation. Do you see it? It's Genesis in reverse. The story of God's redemption of his people is complete. Amen and amen. And so now we come to the table of Christ, our better Moses, our better prophet, our king in the line of David, our atoning sacrifice, the one who sits at the Father's right hand, never failing to make intercession for us. These elements are a reminder that the story of God's redemption is complete. There is no atoning work left to be done. And so remember what our Lord himself said. He said to his disciples, I long to eat this meal with you in the kingdom, and one day it shall be so. So, brothers and sisters, here's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ.